morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Please thank you for joining me today for the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week. Uh, we'll get into the questions in just a moment, but I want to say, obviously, thank you to those of you who are joining me live for our weekly chat here on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, simulcast across all four channels. And we each week we go in-depth into three themes we've been seeing developing in certain news stories we see each week in international education. And we start off each week uh, with the source of those uh, news stories. Uh, we have our newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share. And in case you're wondering, that SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education Consulting. That's the, the name of the business. And I've been running this uh, newsletter for over four and a half years, uh, as well as this live chat to cover the kinds of issues that I think are uh, most relevant to our international education family. Uh, so there are three quick links I'll be posting in the chat on Facebook and YouTube here, and those are for uh, the subscribe page on our newsletter on the website, uh, simieconsulting.org slash subscribe. That's the first link where if you prefer an email version of the newsletter that covers all the top social media stories and international ed stories from around the world and, of course, the United States that impact what we do in international education. So all of those news stories will be available uh, that you can subscribe by going to the web link that I've just dropped for SMIE Consulting. I've also put the link to the most recent edition of that newsletter that you can get via email. But if you also prefer to get your uh, international ed news on LinkedIn, uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter at the, the, the link uh, that is provided for this past Monday's edition. So. We've now crossed 1,000 subscribers, uh, a combination of our web-based and our LinkedIn version of the newsletter. So thank you for making that a weekly part of your international edification. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be coming to you each week, Monday for the for the uh, news news summary uh, in the mid in our newsletter, and then Wednesdays here on the live chat. So uh, we've had some folks joining the live chats uh, in the comments section recently. So if you're if you're out there and you have any thoughts on any of the topics that we're going to cover today, certainly free, feel free to do so, and we'll give you a quick shout out. But I also want to uh, thank those that take the time to download our audio-only podcast version of the Roundup uh, for your listening uh, listening pleasure, uh, for for walking, working out, or just getting through your day, uh, filling that void in the between calls and meetings. So thanks very much for making us a part of your international edification week. So let's get right into our first question of the day, and it is an interesting one. We haven't covered this much here on the Roundup over the last uh, few months, but it's one that's growing in popularity, and it's growing because of primarily because of the pandemic that has certainly exposed a lot of uh, institutions to uh, changes in the way that they do uh, they operate and in terms of the way they teach their classes all of these things have uh, we've have been accelerating uh, since the pandemic and that is the question of will online education options for international students grow 
Now, this is a, a particularly interesting topic in that we know for those of us who have been on the international student advising side or student services side of the desk pre-pandemic, there was a limit to one online class per term that international students could take during their uh, each academic semester, a quarter, uh, year, whatever it might be. So that limit uh, during the pandemic we know was uh, was temporarily set aside, and that the uh, there was an exemption uh, given starting in Mar March of 2020 for international students enrolled in the United States at that time to uh, be exempt from having to take. Uh, be limited to only one online class just because of the nature of the pandemic was changing fundamentally the way uh, educational classes were being taught on college campuses and in turn went most everybody went virtual uh, during that uh, during the early days of that pandemic so uh, this topic of uh, will online uh, Internet, edu educational opportunities for online education expand for international students is an interesting one because of that uh, kind of sort of Damocles that's hanging over international students' head that if, if and when the Department of Homeland Security decides to go back to, uh, to the original policy, if they do go back, then it's going to raise a, a number of challenges for institutions who uh, have a number of courses that, have, uh, that are part of their curriculums or entire degrees that are offered online only now. Uh, and that would present a real problem for any international students that are currently or would be in wanting to enroll in those. So that might prohibit them entirely if they're coming new from overseas to, to begin a completely online program to physically be in the United States. So under current F1 regulations, uh, if we go back to the, the way they, they were. So this is the challenge that we face. And I've posted three links to stories that were, are surrounding this issue. One is about Arizona State, uh, already a big player on the global stage internationally. Uh, it's one of the top, uh, I think they're in the top five or six, yeah, top five institutions for international students in terms of volume. I think they're looking right now at um, over 15,000 international students on campus from the 2022 Open Doors Report. Uh, so there may be more than that now. They probably had a really good fall based on what conversations I've had with the colleagues there. But uh, they are entering into this space. They already had um, a fairly robust um, partnership program that allowed uh, Arizona State students to take uh, degrees uh, at uh, campus partners uh, overseas. Uh, now they're expanding more into the online world uh, with this uh, an approach that is potentially a game changer. We have all remember MOOCs when MOOCs t uh, took off in popularity around in the late noughties and early teens, uh, how important they are uh, as they were seen as a kind of a bellwether of uh, change in the way educational institutions deliver courses. Uh, these the massive online open courses, the MOOCs. Uh, we, to this day, we see data from some of the providers like edX and Coursera that in terms of their numbers, how they've changed over the years, and, and particularly during the pandemic. Pandemic. But this uh, Arizona State story is there you're going to be leveraging YouTube to deliver four credit classes uh, for as low as $400 per course. And this is their way to get into the market of potentially the um, massification of uh, their course courses being available to a wider range of students of academic ability. 
And uh, hello, Jink. Good to see you back on the chat. Uh, and certainly, um, ASU is, uh, uh, is, is, a, is a pioneer in a lot of ways uh, in international education. But with this online piece that will now be leveraging YouTube to deliver their classes for credit, that has some uh, real interesting potential, and it's going to be one to watch uh, as we move forward. Now, uh, a lot of international students access to this will be obviously anyone can access YouTube and potentially register for this class so uh, the, but uh, the challenge was challenges will be in if uh, an entire degree or courses that are being delivered specifically to students in other countries uh, that there are some compliance questions that get raised and uh, we're very fortunate I've mentioned in the past at uh, UNLV where I work currently we have uh, an office of educational compliance that is fully versed in what it means for us to be able to deliver our degrees in other countries and what and the challenges that we need to and hurdles we need to overcome in each of the various countries that we might be looking at when it comes to uh, recognition of a degree uh, or program that we might offer in country uh, virtually or in person uh, whether uh, we are in uh, tax tax implication uh, implications of us being in in country in terms of the cost of education and, and delivery of services in country uh, other other recognition issues uh, employment law and all these other things that we need to be well versed in this is you see this kind of this is kind of a discussion on compliance issues uh, arise whenever institutions start talking about uh, having in-country representation uh, by having an, an employee uh, represent our, their university in another country and that oftentimes uh, the institutions who have tried this and uh, tried to figure out all the implications on their own often realize this can be a very uh, cumbersome, bureaucratic nightmare of a job trying to manage that uh, in terms of payments and, and uh, tax laws and all the other implications for, for any employee that's hired to, to represent you in country. So you see existing companies uh, that uh, have other ser related services now step up and say, hey, uh, I'm Career Mosaic in India. Uh, I Market Entry is one of our brands and we can provide universities in-country representation for a fee, uh, basically paying for all the overhead and the, that, in, that business in country is already established in that country could then do the hiring. So as it applies to online education, that's just an example of some of the issues that uh, come into play when we're talking about how online ed might be uh, impacted by uh, for international international students. Uh, now, this is something that uh, in other countries, the UK, Australia in particular, are particularly good at. Uh, I've shared before how transnational education, something that uh, the British and the Aussies do very well, much better than we do. Uh, Britain educates or issues more degrees and has more students studying in British courses outside of the UK than they do inside the UK. I think it was a million and a half last year. Uh, we're, tr com com uh, we're partaking in transnational education, either online or in physical mortar -based, uh, bricks and mortar structures in other countries or through partner universities uh, that uh, these British universities have established in other nations. So there are versions of 
uh, transnational education that already include online options that other countries are doing. And it's up to institu individual institutions that are intentional about where they might deliver their online classes. So we're not we're kind of dividing this conversation into two pieces. We talked about earlier about international students in, in the United States who want to have the on-campus experience but have to take because of the nature of the courses during the pandemic and immediately after uh, that have turned online or have gone exclusively online or in part online, those students are potentially in jeopardy if and when DHS goes back to the pre-pandemic ruling on one online class per term. So hopefully that we see some evolution in uh, government policy in that regard. But if on the other side of it, for international students that we know during the pandemic, many of them uh, returned home uh, to, to and then took classes either asynchronously or synchronously to uh, to get the content that they need to keep their keep their their, their progress towards graduation. So we'll see what happens uh, in that regard uh, for. A future of in, in of international students' ability to continue to take internet uh, online classes uh, after the pandemic is officially over, or whoever knows when that happens. But uh, what we'll see uh, is the challenges will be with with twofold. There's obviously the challenge, regulatory challenges we'll have to deal with if they do go back to the pre-pandemic pre uh, regulations, and then for those of us who want to. Uh, offer our courses virtually in other countries and target specific markets, you'll need to do your research on what you need to know to do set up uh, officially in-country and deliver uh, online courses. We've saw, seen this week that China has renounced its um, acceptance of online courses uh, that its students uh, can take, that Chinese students that are, have been taking courses virtually either in Australia, UK, uh, Canada, or the US or elsewhere, those are no longer going to be uh, possible, that those Chinese students who came back home uh, during the pandemic will now need to get back into the countries that uh, they are uh, had planned to, to or were already taking degrees uh, and get physically back in country. So China is renouncing their um, recognition of these online classes, so students won't be able to do that anymore. Uh, Chinese students uh, will qualify, those classes won't be recognized if they come back to China with those degrees, if they continue to do online classes. It may be offered, but they won't be recognized if they continue to do that. So we'll see what happens in that in that respect, because it's a very it's a moving target depending on which country you're in, depending on the region, depending on maybe the program, if it's even uh, the individual programs would need to be recognized, not just the institution. So there's a lot of uh, moving parts in this, but will online education option grow? And the, the clear Clear news, and uh, the one piece in this story uh, is uh, the, uh, the World Economic Forum uh, link, which is the second of the three that I posted. That uh, provides some, a really interesting snapshot of uh, where uh, the interest is for online education. And it's been growing substantially. You look at just Coursera. Uh, this is the demand for online uh, online courses through Coursera has grown from uh, tw uh, in 2019 pre-pandemic 44 million to 2021 over 92 million, so doubled during the pandemic, uh, and that has is just seen as just quite remarkable in terms of the, the, the that growth. Uh, and where are those learners coming from? And again, these are the top 10 countries with the most learners that are on the Coursera platform, as an example of where the volume is. Uh, United States is number one, because it's of course Coursera is a US, uh, US product. 17.3 um, million in the United States. India is next with 13.6 million. Mexico third with 4.8 million. Brazil in fourth with 3.7 million. And China, 3.3 
3 million now, and I'm sure those numbers will be dropping precipitously in the next uh, next few weeks and months. Canada is sixth at 2.4 million, Russia 2.4, UK 2.4, Colombia 2.2, and Egypt 1.6 million. So those are the number of users that are currently on Coursera in those individual countries uh, that are taking online classes. So this is it's just an example of giving you the kind of some of the data points that you might be looking at if, if this is something your institution is going to be exploring. If you want to be targeting certain countries where those students are, and then once you know, perhaps um, there's some other data that uh, I know one of our one of the service providers we work with, Study Portals, has uh, an incredible data set on interest levels on, in different countries and where the supply is not is not keeping supply of available uh, places in university. For for certain courses is not meeting the demand. So that's going to be one to watch as well. So if you have access to the study portals data, that would be one to, uh, to get as well to give you a, a very clear picture of what to expect. Now, when we talk about online learning, uh, it's oftentimes thought of um, as just just a is almost secondary. We learned during the pandemic that it's actually essential. But uh, there are ideas of online learning that actually complement what we try and do with international education, particularly at institutions where, for example, if you're trying to get more of your institution students to consider international options, if they don't have, if they don't have a lot of study abroad interest uh, or ability uh, to, to, to participate in programs, something like COIL, uh, Collaborative Online in International Learning. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, we've seen growing uh, dramatically over the last three or four years uh, in certain countries, um, particularly Mexico. There's been huge, uh, huge push to expand COIL offerings between institutions in Mexico and in the United States. I attended a conference in October where this was a the theme for the entire conference is COIL and what the outcomes of those, uh, those stories are. There's a Pi News story that I've linked that shares exactly what um, what that the, the data is suggesting that students that are at institutions where there aren't a lot of options uh, are more impacted in a positive way when it comes to international thinking internationally and uh, developing a hunger for exploring international more uh, when if if they don't have anything anything else like a formal study abroad programs that a participation in a coil program for these are six week programs between two institutions in different countries that really focus on a, whatever the topic of that class is go really in depth to give you the different perspectives from the different cultures and that is um, where students who don't have other options on campus that's where they really see a lot of growth and thinking about uh, what international might mean. So if your campus doesn't have a, a huge uh, abundance of these kind of programs, uh, traditional study abroad programs, summer, short-term, semester-long programs, then COIL might be a way to go to at least gen start generating that interest. Uh, and there's, the Pi News article covers a lot of, a lot of those details uh, in terms of um, uh, what, what the data shows for how that, how that can be a real value to your institution that might be, be another piece in the internationalization puzzle that you're trying to develop. So online education is uh, going to continue to grow, in my opinion, and the, the market for it is going to be there. Uh, the supply certainly is not meeting the demand right now in a lot of areas. So I think there's going to be great potential moving forward for institutions to move into this area. Related to that topic on the international student growth in the United States, um, uh, we have seen this past week, um, CVIS, uh, uh, they, they, do, they ended up doing uh, this, uh, uh, obviously, 
See, uh, our friends at DHS, uh, they are political beasts. They operate in, in a very uh, sensitive world in terms of uh, regulations, what they can say, what they can't say. And the, the qu second question today is, what does the CVIS by the numbers report tell us? They've just issued one in January uh, that will take it takes into account the intakes we've seen. Uh, it's real-time data when it's published uh, each, each, each time they do. Uh, last, July, last August at the EDUSA forum, we'd seen a, an update in the spring, and I asked the uh, DHS officers that were there from uh, uh, SEVP, uh, will there be another CVS by the numbers in the fall? What can we expect? Oh, it's probably, just, they said, it's probably just going to be a once a year thing. And clearly that didn't happen because they did a couple in the fall and now they've done one in January too. So at least they got the message realizing that we need this kind of data. And for those that aren't familiar, CVS by the numbers takes the data from active applicants or active students that have entered the United States that are in valid F1 status across the range of categories. So this also includes down to primary school, high school, uh, vocational education, ESL training, uh, Bachelor, associates, bachelor's, master's, doctoral level training. So all of those, all active F1 students are in this mix, in this report. So CVIS, FNMs actually. So there's about 30,000 vocational only students in the United States, another couple thousand uh, in flight schools, that type of thing. But in terms of the uh, this report, it's put out irregularly, but a couple, three times a year maybe, uh, that does give you snapshots of where we are right now in January of, for international student numbers in the United States. Now, the CVIS by the numbers report uh, is, is, is not a user-friendly site, and I'll be putting the links to, the, to both uh, the ICIF monitor report, which is the main focus for why I'm bringing this up today, uh, that shares that we are back over a million uh, international students in the United States, first time since before the pandemic. Pandemic. And that is, uh, that's encouraging after uh, we saw, obviously, a lot of uh, drop-offs. Uh, the continued drop-offs of Chinese students, obviously, that accelerated during the pandemic because they were the most uh, restricted in terms of their movements, uh, that we didn't get the students coming that we were supposed to have been getting, in addition to the already declining trend in Chinese students coming. So uh, the two, doc two links I've just dropped are the ICIF monitor uh, report, as well as the um, the actual link to the CVS by the numbers uh, site that has the data for uh, this current January 2023 term. Now, it's a, as I mentioned, it's not a user-friendly database uh, in terms of it's just a spreadsheet uh, that you have to scroll down through and it doesn't have any export features. So basically you have to cut and paste. And I do this fairly regularly whenever these reports come out. I usually spend some time. So the data reports are that there are 1 million uh, 84,347 total active students in the United States from the 226 uh, countries and territories and more that are in uh, in the in the database now. Now, uh, in terms of volume, uh, we see the, the 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 two that you would expect to see at the top of the list: India and China are right there. So, in terms of where um, where they are, we saw in the fall when the fall numbers came up. Uh, we saw, um, we saw country, uh, we saw numbers, uh, and we saw, I should say, total, in terms of total active students, the difference between India and China uh, was down to about 45,000. 
I think it was 290 for for China and 245 for India or 250 for India. And that was from I think the October or November report. So the current report uh, shows that that gap has narrowed uh, to uh, only 9,000 now. So with uh, 262,000 Chinese students, so a continued drop, uh, we've seen Chinese students drop 29% in the last three years. We've seen Indian students increase 30% in the last year. So we're down to 262,992 Chinese and 253,631 Indian. Now, I guarantee you by, by the fall intake, this the Indian numbers will surpass the Chinese numbers, and we will have, for the first time since 2004-05, I think it is, more Indian students studying in the United States than Chinese. Uh, there may well be a rebound in Chinese students, but it's not going to be anytime soon, and in, in, certainly not in the volume that we've experienced, uh, certainly from the mid-naughties to the mid-teens. That 10-year span just saw an explosion of Chinese undergraduates everywhere in the United States. Uh, many college campuses, particularly the big state schools, UNLV included, starting in 2014-15, we might have peaked and then started dropping off and I've still seen uh, continued declines accelerated by the pandemic from China. Uh, and you, as, a, as, a, as an institution that's looking to diversify, we certainly don't want to lose our base. And China is an important part of our base on campus, and it may be on many other college campuses, particularly on larger state institutions. But uh, we need to re, we certainly need to maintain some of the, many of those ties that we had had, and start start to restart and look for other venue, avenues where we can be expanding our operations in China and partnerships and other. Uh, other pathways for uh, for Chinese students to find us and other countries as well. But when it comes to numbers, sheer volume, you can't get away from India and China. They're the, the two 800-pound gorillas in the room. Uh, and India in particular, their growth rate, we've seen the demographic story last week about China, how they had their first drop in populations in over 50 years in China. And the outlook is not looking great for growth, for return to growth in terms of college-age populations, just because of the cumulative impacts of the one-child policy over the years that we know that's been dropped recently, but that'll be another 10, 15 years before we see any fruits of that labor. Uh, but we also see in China, the uh, as opposed to India, India's population is continuing to surge. It, India, not only in terms of international students in the United States, will overtake China this year. In there's no almost no doubt in my mind uh, that that will happen. But in world population uh, terms, India's population will surpass China's this year as well, if it hasn't already. So India will will be the the largest player for for the foreseeable future in terms of international student numbers in the United States. States and predictions of doubling or tripling uh, the number of Indians studying abroad uh, happening in the next couple of years. So that market is just going to explode everywhere, much like Ch uh, China did in the mid-naughties, but not at the same level at the undergrad level that we saw in the U.S. Uh, at that point, because the that the right though the Indian undergraduate market is is growing substantially. Uh, it's uh, the undergraduate inbound population to the U.S. may take a little bit longer to to see significant volume growth, but it is growing in the right direction. And we've talked about that here as well. So the numbers do show a lot of um, interesting tidbits in terms of outside the top uh, top. T so we look at China and India with both more than a quarter million international students in the United States. Uh, the top 10, uh, coincidentally, uh, we see this roughly the same number. Uh, and this is where we get into a little bit of differences in terms of open doors versus uh, vote versus um, 
versus um, the SEVAs by the numbers report. Uh, in the, if you notice in the uh, ISIF monitor report, it had a list of the top 10 uh, countries, or I think it was the top 10. Yeah, and the numbers uh, that are uh, in the United States now, I think uh, we've got... We've got the top 10 that are listed there. It had, the data that's in the ISIF monitor report is actually different than what's in the, um, the CVS by the numbers report. They may have cut out some of the categories uh, that uh, and just looked at the higher ed numbers, not didn't look at the uh, undergraduate number or high school or IEP numbers, but uh, we see a lot of uh, differences. The top 10 on the, that are displayed on this uh, ISIF monitor report are the same pre and post pandemic, but the orders have changed after China and India, which are still the same right now. Uh, South Korea was still th is still third. Uh, we see Saudi Arabia has dropped from fourth down to 10th. Uh, Brazil is the same. Vietnam is the same. Canada has increased to uh, to fourth position. Uh, v Vietnam is, is at in sixth position. Taiwan has, is a little bit of a, a bump, but that's more for for, for uh, Japan continuing to drop and also Saudi Arabia continuing to drop. So you see uh, see a lot of uh, a lot of uh, interesting changes in Nigeria for all the problems that we've we've heard reported on visa issuance, uh, they've had an increase uh, from 16,000 to 19,400 since pre and post pandemic uh, in that three year span from January 2020 to January 23. So uh, the data is certainly showing uh, a lot of positives, the uh, diversification of where uh, the outside the top 10 is certainly happening in terms of where those students are. But uh, we'll certainly keep uh, everybody up to speed in terms of what that is uh, that will continue to look like in the days and weeks and months to come. Now, in terms of our last question of the day, what do you do about transfer outs down under? Now, here's an interesting one. Uh, a lot of my colleagues in the ISS uh, world uh, have shared many times uh, over the last four or five years the challenges that they have with regards to uh, students coming to their institutions, uh, all excited, them issuing I-20s, uh, record numbers of applicants, and all of these fun, fun, uh, fun, fun anecdotal stories I keep hearing. And you get the problem where uh, within a week of the start of class uh, to the, a couple days after the start of class, you, they don't show up. Uh, you get calls or emails uh, saying they want to transfer to another institution without ever enrolling at your institution. And the way SEVIS is set up, uh, we know that they legally are able to do that. And you have to f basically facilitate that as a, a school that is receiving the student who issued the documents that that student used to get into the country. If the student comes in and decides before they enroll that they want to go somewhere else before the semester begins, they can do that. Uh, and you have to transfer their record to the new institution. And at some schools, you would see, we saw this in in Washington State in a, a year or two ago, uh, where there was waves of Bangladeshis coming in, uh, and then all of a sudden transferring out with ever, without ever showing up on campus or disappearing into the woodwork completely. That caused uh, DHS and the SAPP field up reps to have all those all the Washington schools come to a virtual meeting and be called out on the carpet and warned about what to look for and all these things about how to how to prevent that. 
I've just uh, read the story this past week. It's in the in the chat now. It's from uh, Pi News, uh, again my favorite source on international ed topics each week, particularly on the global level. They do uh, great work in Australia, UK, Canada as well. But uh, this uh, this story is entitled "Australian Universities Renew Calls to Limit Student Poaching." And it's a call by universities uh, that to the government saying uh, the government should extend the time an international student must spend at the institution they initially join before they can switch providers. And this, uh, there are a couple of institutions in particular, Queensland, Queensland University of Technology and the University of Wollongong, have uh, recommended the government restrict uh, the ability to transfer uh, for international students. So currently, and here's, here's what my U.S. friends will love. Currently, students must complete six months of study before they can transfer to a different institution. And the course they transfer to must be the same level as their previous one. And how many of you out there on the U.S. side, I was at an institution that I joined to kind of clean up a mess that had been created uh, one time where uh, there were at one point 150 transfer outs in, in a semester. Uh, and that was just before I, before I got there, and that was a, a particular challenge. Um, and w w we would get students, we'd admit to bachelor's degree, pro or excuse me, we would admit to master's degree programs that the students would come in, and then we'd find out that they want to transfer out, and they want to transfer to a bachelor's degree program. So students that are uh, are going back in time, back in their educational progress. So very dodgy in terms, in, 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 to say the least, but in terms of what's allowed, that was still in, within SEVA's terms, that was allowed and we couldn't prevent it. But in Australia, uh, they have to wait right now. The existing regulations are that they have to wait six months before they can transfer. These universities want to extend that time and prevent students from transferring either from maybe even even something as uh, significant and they, they don't go into details in this this report but they use it as a way to get in the door and then disappear in, into the woodwork maybe go from a highly regarded university to a vocational program or go from a master's degree to a bachelor's degree a second bachelor's degree a lower cost degree which is oftentimes the motivating factor so uh, the the quote from the article that I, I look at uh, is you see, uh, the majority of providers work collaborative, collaboratively and in the interests of the student to ensure this process is transparent and supportive. There are a small number of providers, agents, and students that seek to use this system to transfer once onshore for reasons other than educational outcomes. And whilst this is a small minority, it undermines the integrity of the system. So uh, that is something that universities are apparently struggling with in Australia, that um, that six months apparently is not long enough for, for most universities. And what do you do with a student who wants to transfer after six months because they're not doing well or no, they've just changed their major and they don't like your institution because it doesn't provide the level of services that they need and could have very valid reasons for wanting to transfer. But so that I know I know for many of my U.S. colleagues, when we when we read this, we're just going, you have to they get to wait a, a whole semester or six months before they can transfer. They go genius. Let's have some more of that because that 
is something that we would, we, in the U.S., we, the amount of effort that goes into recruiting a student to getting them to come, to getting them into the country, and then you're all excited and ready for them to enroll, and then they transfer out. And then here's another one, and another, and another 10, another 20, another 30. And then that's just demoralizing for international offices. Uh, but to see that our Australian brothers and sisters are having having a, a little bit of agita when uh, they have to wait. They want more than six months for, before a student can transfer out. So very interesting to see that coming out of Australia. But uh, that's all we have for you today on the Roundup. I do appreciate those of you who stuck with me for, for, the, for the half hour here. And we do appreciate you being a part of the SMIE Consulting uh, education, International Education family. And we look forward to chatting with you again next week. Uh, next week, I will uh, give you a little heads up. I'm going to be on campus uh, at the uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and hopefully have, some, have a minute or two to, to do a quick uh, preview from and give you a little insight as to what's going on on the UNLV campus at this time. So thanks very much for being with a part, part of the conversation today, and we uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Cheers.